Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 179, The Year of Congresses. Now, no new patrons since a few days ago when I recorded the last episode, but as always, if you can support this program, please do. It helps me shamelessly buy all the expensive niche out-of-print academic books that I love to use to make the show as, well, basically the best I can for you. So consider if you can, and otherwise, just thanks for listening. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, Bulgaria concluded agreements with the Ottomans and Serbs to improve relations while Russia went to war with Japan. We also saw more of the kind of bitter aftermath of the Ilinden uprising as the supremacists more or less disband and the MRO is kind of in the process of breaking into warring factions. Meanwhile, Serbia and Greece began or expanded the sending of their own armed Cheti into Macedonia to compete with the now weakened pro-Bulgarian movement there. And I want to begin today with Macedonia, as we so often do. Now, I know I've taken quite a few kind of breaks from the narrative to discuss the Macedonian identity question because, well, it's really, really, really complex. You know, I've been writing and thinking and reading about this for, gosh, I guess almost 20 years now, uh, you know, 15, at least 15 years. And I still feel like there's so much I don't know. And it's still, I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it. And on that note, a listener and patron, Alexander Stankovsky, shared some of his thoughts and analysis of my discussion of Macedonian identity up to this point, and I thought he made some really good points, and so I wanted to kind of share another round of thoughts on the issue based a bit on what Alexander has shared with me. Now first, Alexander points out that some of you may have gotten the impression from me that Bulgaria, Serbia, and Greece all had kind of somewhat equal claims uh, to the territory of Macedonia because I talk so much about what each of them is doing and, you know, speaking, just, just it's, a, it's a classic problem even today in journalism things, right, that sometimes when you discuss things together, you imply that they are kind of equal. But to be clear, I don't think this is the case. The scale of pro-Bulgarian activity in Macedonia absolutely dwarfs anything done in favor of Greece or Serbia. I mean, it's it's really not even close at this point. In particular, the amount of pro-Bulgarian activity by organizations like the MRO, before it kind of shifted to be less pro-Bulgarian and more internationalist, is something we'll talk about. But organizations like the MRO, which didn't even have direct government support, point to the fact that far more people in Macedonia have a strong Bulgarian identity compared to those with a kind of Greek or a Serbian one. Because as we'll see, at this point, pretty much all the Greek or kind of pro-Greek or pro-Serbian activities are directly supported by, you know, one of those two governments or at least the Greek uh, patriarchate church. Whereas there's, you know, some of these activities supported by the Bulgarian exarchist church, some supported by the Bulgarian government, but a ton of these kinds of, you know, pro-Bulgarian activities in Macedonia are completely grassroots. They don't have any, you know, official organizational support outside the country. So 
Again, it is true. The MRO did eventually move away from that Bulgarian connection, but as we'll talk about, you know, it did struggle a bit to detach the organization from its strong Bulgarian associations and origins. But yeah, contrast this with the fact that Serbia and Greece both found it nearly impossible to successfully recruit locals in Macedonia to participate in anything resembling the scale of armed resistance and organization against the Ottomans. Considering how many thousands of people who willingly took up arms to fight in pro-Bulgarian uprisings, even though there's no doubt that some of them were not taking part in those uprisings because they were pro-Bulgarian, but more because they were anti-Ottoman or because they felt they had no choice and their village was going to get burned anyway, so they might as well try to help the, the, the uprising succeed. Despite that, the difference in support is stark. Now, Alexander then shared some further research on Bulgarian schools established in Macedonia before the establishment of the Bulgarian Exarchate Church. In other words, schools that were established again by grassroots efforts before the Bulgarian state and church began to get involved and basically, yeah, try to aid that mission. So again, this contrasts with the lack of those kind of similar grassroots movements on behalf of Greece or Serbia. So again, before state involvement, there was a lot of grassroots organization. Same kind of uh, pattern we've seen. And in particular, Greece was barely able to make a substantial impact despite the fact that the Greek government ultimately devoted a huge amount of state resources. And ultimately, as we know, started to even have Ottoman cooperation. So again, when you look at the, the scale of what was able to be achieved relative to the resources involved, relative to the level of cooperation or kind of opposition from the Ottomans, Bulgaria, you know, stands far above, you know, support for kind of Bulgarian aligned movements in Macedonia stands far above those for Greece or Serbia. Now, all this gets to the reality that prior to the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878, most participants in the Bulgarian National Revival saw Macedonia as just another part of Bulgaria, no different than any other. And as we've discussed, many of the participants of the revival were indeed from Macedonia. So we get to the issue of viewing many of Macedonia's peasants as not having strong national identities prior to the 19th century, which is something that I've talked about. Now, I think many Macedonians prior to this time, I think it's true, they did not have a strong national identity. But as I pointed out, but I think it's worth re-emphasizing here, this was the case throughout Europe and throughout much of the world. It, it's not like, oh, these were just, you know, some people who, who uniquely didn't have an identity and this is kind of a weird thing in Macedonia. No, this was kind of standard. This was far more common than the opposite at this point in world history. Strong national identities connected to nation states are a pretty recent innovation. You know, it's, a, it's largely a thing that really spread and became you know, kind of a powerful force mostly in the 19th century, which is much later in history than most of us probably imagine. Now, all that said, linguistically, culturally, religiously, the majority of Slavs in Macedonia were far closer to Bulgarian than Greeks or Serbs. I think that's quite clear. Uh, you know, I've talked about how ultimately, you know, identity is a personal choice and things like language, culture, religion, ethnicity, these are all potential building blocks of identity, but they aren't all kind of guarantees, right? It's like they're, they're bricks that could be used to build a house, but they could be used to build a bridge. You know, they can be used for a lot of different things, depending on what you want to do. 
So for me, language, culture, religion, those are all potential elements of an identity, but they're secondary to your stated identity. All that is to say, the majority of people in Macedonia were extremely similar to people in the Principality of Bulgaria and Eastern Rumelia in all those key ways, similar enough that you could easily call them Bulgarians based on those factors. But, you know, I, I still think that despite those similarities, calling them Bulgarians if they don't identify that way is incorrect. But I don't want that to kind of mask the fact that they were, you know, much, much, much closer to Bulgarians than any other group. Now, I've shared examples of people from single families identifying as, uh, you know, basically being members of different national groups, and those are real, but they are still anecdotes. You know, I think they help illustrate why different differences between language, culture, religion, and national identity uh, can potentially differentiate people, but also cannot, depending on what those people individually choose to identify with. But I you know, I think Alexander rightfully pointed out that you could think that this is a widespread phenomenon when it wasn't that widespread. So I want to make a note that those those anecdotes are used to kind of illustrate you know, more like hypothetical points, but shouldn't be taken to, to kind of misconstrued that this was a, a mass phenomenon and tons of families were divided and people were changing their identities all the time. It definitely happened. You know, whole villages ostensibly changed their identities. But yeah, I, I don't want that to kind of overshadow the reality that a lot of those, you know, cultural, linguistic, blah, 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 building blocks were there. Now, Alexander also rightly pointed out that my attempts to avoid the kind of chauvinistic argument that, oh, Macedonians today are just Bulgarians and they just don't know it. Um, you know, he, he, he thinks that in my attempts to avoid that argument, um, I maybe go a little bit too far and, and again, kind of create some potential misunderstandings. Uh, I think he made a good summary of this, so I want to quote what he wrote to me. So Alexander writes, quote, all indications are that the Macedonian Slavs of the 19th century were a constituent part of the Bulgarian nation. However, since then, political events have intervened such that now there is a Bulgarian nation, but also a separate Macedonian nation, which formed later as a result of a process of ethnogenesis, end quote. Now I'm going to talk about that ethnogenesis process for Macedonia. And in fact, you know, in the early 20th century, the period we're covering now, that's already beginning to happen. Right? We're, we're already starting to see some disagreements in the MRO. We're already starting to see even some individuals kind of oscillate between being, you know, more, I want Macedonia to be a part of Bulgaria, or I want Macedonia to be independent and then a part of Bulgaria, to maybe Macedonia should be independent on its own. You know, I, I've talked about this idea to create a kind of multi-linguistic, multi-ethnic, multi-religious Macedonian state. So, you know, some of those early building blocks of what would ultimately become a separate Macedonian nation are just starting to, to kind of sprout from the ground, but they're in an early stage. And so, you know, I, I just want to make that clear that, you know, nations, because identities ultimately exist in our minds, they can and they do change over time. And so the fact that I recognize that there is an independent, separate Macedonian nation today does not mean necessarily that, you know, the Macedonians could never be considered Bulgarians in the past. These things can and do change. And so, yeah, 
you can see it's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who can get very offended by how you want to portray this and things. And so it's, it's delicate. And I think, yeah, Alexander points out that, you know, in my attempts to basically not offend and anger people and not to be dismissive of people's identities, I've maybe created a somewhat false impression over time. So yeah, I just want to kind of provide a little bit more clarity. Uh, and well, put another way, yes, today there is a distinct Macedonian nation, distinct from the Bulgarian one. But the tendency of many people in North Macedonia today to deliberately misinterpret or even falsify history to erase any Bulgarian identification that existed before the mid-20th century is a very real phenomenon, one I've witnessed firsthand, and is also very problematic. So in other words, Bulgarians saying that, oh, Macedonians are just Bulgarians who are, you know, have forgotten or were brainwashed by communists or something, I think they are wrong. You know, that I think that's a again a very chauvinistic argument, a very kind of uh yeah, it's arrogant, and you can't just dismiss someone's identity that way. At the same time, people in North Macedonia who yeah, misrepresent and falsify their own history to pretend like there was never a strong Bulgarian identification in the past, they're also wrong. They're also committing a mistake. And that's, you know, one of the kind of challenges Bulgaria has in its relationship with Macedonia is combating both of those kind of incorrect, I think, approaches to this issue. Uh, one based in one country, one based in the other. Anyways, that was a very long tangent. But, you know, to summarize, I've tried to cover the complexity of identity in Macedonia and to push back against simplistic views that Macedonians have just always been Bulgarians. But in doing so, I may have gone too far and created an impression that there wasn't a very strong Bulgarian national identity in Macedonia in the 19th century, or that Bulgaria, Greece, and Serbia all had more or less equal claims to the territory and the identity of its people. These things are, are kind of undoubtedly not true. The grassroots expressions of Bulgarian national identity in Macedonia far outweighed anything similar connected to Greece or Serbia. Ultimately, it's fair to say that the largest and the most prominent national identity in Macedonia at this time was Bulgarian. However, as we'll cover later in this podcast, later on, a more clear and distinct Macedonian identity was gradually created and strengthened such that today, the vast majority of people, and particularly Slavs, in North Macedonia identify simply as Macedonians, and that that identity is valid and is correct. So these two ideas, importantly, are not contradictory, as national identities are never completely static. They change literally all the time, again, even in individuals moving into different countries, different rooms in a, in a home can affect how a person uses their identity and thinks about their identity. And so, yeah, overall, we can't ever think about identities as just completely static things and that these kinds of changes over time are not only normal. I mean, they're, they're, they're normal throughout history. This has always happened. And so, yeah, we, we can't see them as like weird aberrations and things that are impossible and that we have to push back against. So the tragedy today, in my mind, at least, is that the clashes between the kind of chauvinistic Bulgarians who tell their Macedonians their identity is fake and illegitimate, and Macedonians who assist on falsifying history to pretend their ancestors never had a Bulgarian identity in the past, yeah, the, the fact that this conflict holds back the ability of these two countries with so much shared history to kind of work together and collaborate, that it holds back North Macedonia from moving closer towards, you know, EU and, and uh, institutions like this to, you know, 
that it keeps North Macedonia away from institutions that could make the people of that country a lot freer uh, and a lot more basically prosperous. That that's hard. That hurts. It's 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 difficult to see, and so I want to kind of push back against both of those. In a way, I mean, it's a bit like if you imagine a brother and a sister, they grow up together, but then the sister gets married and changes her family name. Now, the sister claims that she was never part of the original family because her name is different now, while the brother says her new name is basically fake. You know, it's a weird little analogy, but you can kind of see how both of them are wrong and both of them are being unreasonable in this situation. Okay, so now that I've spent like a huge chunk of a third episode just diving deep into questions of Macedonian identity, it's time to jump back into the narrative and begin the year of 1905. Now, as you know, maybe hinted in the title of this episode, for some reason, 1905 was just the year of Congresses. I counted five Congresses held in various revolutionary districts connected with the MRO in this year alone. And frankly, it's entirely possible I missed some because, you know, try my best to find all the events that happen and include them, but things can always fall through the cracks. So why? In essence, all these Congresses were direct responses, again, to the failures of the Alinden uprising and concerns about rising Greek and Serbian activity in Macedonia. Because again, both those countries saw a moment of weakness and saw a moment of opportunity to, to increase their, again, pretty low level of influence in the territory. Now, at this point, the remaining members of the MRO and uh, those two left and right factions I mentioned before, they're having all these congresses because they want to decide on a path forward. What should they do now? Now, the first of these meetings happened just days into the new year when the Skopje revolutionary district leaders met in the village of Knezhevo. The meeting itself only had 20 delegates, but there were a full 250 Chetniks there for security, which, you know, understandable. Uh, obviously, in the wake of the uprising, attention on the MRO was very high, and so security was a huge concern. This meeting was headed by a man named Todor Alexandrov. If you spend any time driving around the city of Sofia, that name should sound familiar, as it's now the name of one of the kind of main boulevards leading from Sofia's central square to the west. Now, Born in Macedonia near Stip in 1881, this guy, Todor studied at the Bulgarian school in Skopje before joining the MRO. At this moment, he was recently out of an Ottoman prison, having been released in that amnesty I mentioned for kind of MRO fighters in the last episode. However, he's now in hiding once again after evidence of his ongoing participation in MRO activities was acquired by Ottoman authorities. So, join the MRO, got arrested by the Ottomans, released in an amnesty, then they found out he was still participating in MRO activities, and now he is on the run again. So now here he is running the Skopje Congress. There, some decisions were made about ensuring peasants could buy land if they cultivated it and it went up for sale, uh, promoting primary education, you know, a, few, a few things a little less co connected to kind of revolutionary struggle, but still showing that the MRO was trying to be a bit more conscious of the bread and butter issues of the people that they were trying to liberate and not just focusing purely on, you know, liberation will solve everything. But besides all this, they also agreed on a set of principles for revolutionary struggle. In other words, the organization was trying to develop a stronger baseline of ideas on which it could run. You know, what does revolutionary struggle mean to us? The question they're trying to answer. But importantly, this is a regional meeting. 
And it was specifically designed to kind of prepare for the main MRO Congress that was supposed to be held at the Rila Monastery in October. So over that summer, there were Congresses held in Ceres, Salonika, and the Strumetsa districts. And again, all these were designed to kind of get, you know, take the pulse uh, and make some decisions about what each of these districts would want to kind of get agreed upon at this main meeting at the Rila Monastery in October. And so that takes us to the Rila meeting itself. Uh, I, I tried to find details about some of those other congresses, but really just couldn't find anything just about the Skopje one. So that's the only one I mentioned. But yeah, jumping ahead, what happened at this big congress? Now, first, the location was chosen because it wasn't in the Bulgarian principality where, as you know, the MRO was banned and a series of large-scale meetings like this could cause political problems for the government in Sofia because, you know, it told the Ottomans it was going to really kind of, you know, try to restrict the activities of the MRO. So the MRO was like, all right, they, they didn't want to cause a big rift between the Ottomans and the Bulgarians. So it makes sense to hold this in Ottoman territory. But still, the Rila Monastery is quite close to the Bulgarian border, so it's not so hard to get to. Importantly, as anyone who's been there knows, the Rila Monastery is also just, I mean, it's a veritable fortress surrounded by high mountains on nearly all sides. And of course, the monastery itself, with very high walls. So because, I mean, technically you could hike over some of the mountains to get to the Rila Monastery. I've done it a few times. It's a, it's a reasonably tough hike, but you know, in a typical, I don't, I don't think Ottoman soldiers were hiking up and over those mountains. So for the most part, if someone was going to kind of attack or, or come up to the monastery, they'd have to take the road that exists now, which is one way it's easy to spot. And so, you know, this makes it a place where if the MRO had to defend itself or get early warning of Ottoman troops, they could do that. Anyways, the meeting was run by Dam Gruev, as we know, one of the original founders of the MRO. And it shouldn't come as any surprise that those recent rifts between left and right factions were on full display at this meeting. I mentioned last episode, but just as a kind of reminder of who these factions were, the left faction is against nationalism and wants a kind of socialistic Balkan federation where all religions and ethnicities are equal. So again, kind of moving away from a strong Bulgarian identification. The right faction is the more traditionally pro-Bulgarian one and has recently been somewhat bolstered by a bunch of former members of the supremacists who, now that that organization is kind of no more, are now trying to join the MRO. However, despite that influx of more right-leaning members, the left-wing faction was clearly dominating this meeting. When the members voted on a new statute to govern the organization, for example, it read in part, quote, IMARO, the new name, aims to unite in one whole all discontented elements in Macedonia and the Adrianople regions, regardless of nationality, for the winning of full political autonomy for these two provinces. That was Article 1. The organization opposes attempts in any part of any state whatsoever to divide and conquer these provinces. Article 2. In order to achieve the same, the organization strives to eliminate all chauvinistic propaganda and the national quarrels which divide and weaken the population in its fight against the common foe. It works for a revolutionary spirit and consciousness in the population, with everything necessary for a common nationwide uprising. It concerns itself with the cultural and economic advances of the population and assists in its legal struggle against the Turkish authorities. Article 3, end quote. So already there, you know, in the, the kind of new articles that are going to govern the organization, you can see how clearly the left faction is dominating. 
It goes on in Article 5 to stipulate that, quote, every person living in European Turkey, regardless of sex, religion, nationality, and conviction, end quote. Uh, so again, it's, it's referring to these more universal principles, universal ideas about everyone coming together, regardless of their divisions. And overall in this meeting, they draw up a total of 216 articles. Together, they radically change the MRO. They make it a far more democratic group with elections for leadership at basically all levels. And this meant that, you know, obviously members would now have a lot more say. But, you know, thinking ahead, this could also make the organization less decisive, less consistent, and less united. Right? It's, it's, as anyone has now living in this world, it's uh, the, the give and take of democracy, right? It, it can produce good governance. It can produce govern, governments that have a lot of popular support. But it can also produce a lot of, uh, you know, infighting and, and such. So, you know, it's remains to be seen how these changes will affect the MRO. But, you know, to give you an idea of how much this democratization has affected it, even the Central Committee now has to face elections. Whereas before, the Central Committee was unelected and kind of ran things as they liked. So these new rules are broadly both very liberal Again, every member basically having the right to a fair trial, but also very strict. All members now have to be morally upstanding. So, you know, if uh, a member of the MRO is found to be like cheating on his wife, he could be punished by the organization for that. So it's a kind of interesting blend of, you know, I mean, frankly, it's a, it's a little bit, uh, yeah, we've seen similar things of granting some of these kind of liberal rights, but still wanting uh, social conservatism to be upheld. The Congress also decided to issue an ultimatum to what remained of the supremacist organization, basically telling it it has to dissolve and cease all activity immediately. Again, the organization is basically defunct, although technically the formal dissolution doesn't come until a few days after General Tsonchev receives this message. And frankly, it's a bit funny and even shocking that he actually complied. So yeah, the, the technically, technically the supremacists still exist at this point, but when Sonchev gets the letter from the MRO in telling him to dissolve it, he actually does. And at that point, the supremacists formally cease to exist. So the delegates also had some uh, strong words, let's say, for Boris Sarafov, accusing him of working for the Serbian cause. Some committees actually had already sentenced Sarafov to death, some of the kind of regional committees. And yeah, I think a British journalist named Henry Noel Brailsford, uh, I think, gave a nice summary of how people feel in this moment towards Sarafov in a book he published on Macedonia in 1906. Brailsford writes, quote, His influence makes for rash decisions and violent methods. He stands, indeed, to the main body of the Revolutionary Party, much as the less intellectual anarchists used to stand towards the Orthodox Socialists in the days of the Internationale. When they are for regular warfare, he is for dynamite. When they believed in a truce, he is apt to kick over the traces. But his importance is very much exaggerated in Europe. Sorafov understands the uses of advertisement, and his fame is dear to sensational journalists. But in Macedonia, he is merely the rather irresponsible ally of much stronger men. The real brain of the revolt is Damian Gruev, the president of the internal organization, whose name I suppose is quite unknown beyond the Balkans. He, that is Gruff, thinks in years, while Sarafov sees no further than tomorrow's newspapers and spends his winters among the Macedonian villages while the heroes of the movement are posing in Paris and London. 
It is a pity that Serafov has captivated the journalistic imagination, for he represents everything that is bloody and unscrupulous in the war of liberation. End quote. So, interesting there. You know, you, you get some idea that, yes, yeah, Serafov is a bit of a show-off and that, yeah, he, he gets a lot of the fame and the, the credit for things, but on the ground, it's people like Gruev who are actually making things happening. And maybe that Serafov is a bit of a, um, what's the word, like... Uh, he likes to oppose things, right? He likes to kind of stand against people. And so he's rubbed a lot of folks the wrong way. Thus, now the Central Committee basically debating whether he should be put to death. American journalist A.D.H. Smith wrote that same year that Sarafov was, quote, indubitably nothing more than a paid spy of the Bulgarian government used by Prince Ferdinand as a lever to control the progress of the revolution. The insurgent leaders of all parties invariably clever and pleasant to get along with, I have never heard adverse moral criticism made of one, except Serafov, end quote. So, in other words, you know, this guy's spending a lot of time around uh, Macedonian revolutionary organizations and, and members. Basically, all the leaders are thought of well amongst pretty much everyone, except for Serafov. Now, whether he was actually a kind of paid by the Bulgarian government, I don't know. But we do know that he has kind of shifted sides, shifted allegiances quite a lot in this story. So I guess it's plausible. All that is to say, Sarov have had pretty few friends in the MRO by this point, and the Congress only narrowly avoided sentencing him to death. But he was spared, and soon the Congress adjourned. The Congress as a whole somewhat revitalized public opinion of the MRO in Bulgaria, where the organization had been somewhat shunned after the failures of the Linden Uprising, Sandansky, for example, was now a minor, minor celebrity in the cafes of Sofia, though he still scrupulously avoided any formal ties with the Bulgarian government and always sat with his back to the wall, eyes at the room's entrance, fearful of being assassinated. In Sofia, Sandansky also managed some arms sales and to begin the process of re-equipping the MRO for future fights. He worked to get all this done as quickly as possible as he suspected that, well, the Bulgarian government would soon feel he had overstayed his welcome. Sure enough, just as Sandansky was ordered arrested by the Bulgarian government, he quickly escaped into Macedonia because, as we know, he basically he could feel the writing on the wall. He could see it. Once in Macedonia, he was attacked by Ottoman soldiers and managed to escape again, this time after an intense firefight in which he and his Cheta were basically surrounded. So, yeah, Sandansky gets some weapons and just barely escapes Bulgaria and then escape Ottoman attacks with his life, but he's alive. Now, Sandansky had been found in part because around the time of the Congress, the Voivoda Tasko Vransky was betrayed by a spy in the organization and he was surrounded by Ottoman Bashibuzuks, the irregular soldiers. After a bloody fight, his detachment escaped after losing two men. But one of those men was carrying the bag containing that guy's archive, all his letters and things. Thus, the Ottomans were able to crack the code he used for his letters and as a result arrested 64 MRO members who were later exiled to the island of Rhodes. Ultimately, it was hoped that the Rila meeting, the Rila Congress, would resolve the split in the organization, but while the left dominated, the split remained. Another general congress was scheduled for Sofia in January of 1906. But while all this had been happening, yet another bloody massacre resulted from that increasing Greek presence in Macedonia. In the village of Zagoritsa, now called Kostor in Greece, this village was a kind of center of the Bulgarian revival. 
It had participated in the Linden Uprising, and as a result, the village had been burned and dozens of its citizens were killed by Ottoman forces. But the strength of the village's pro-Bulgarian and pro-Exarchate feelings made it a target for the newly invigorated pro-Greek forces in Macedonia. Thus, they resolved to destroy it. A detachment of 300 Greek fighters, led by a guerrilla leader from Crete named Georgios Tsontos, gathered to attack Zagoritsa. In the days prior, the Ottoman army had raided the town to find weapons. This, along with the understanding that it would have been nearly impossible for such a large force, again, 300 fighters, to move through Ottoman territory without the Ottomans knowing about it, has, has pushed many to conclude that the Ottomans tacitly supported the Greek actions in this massacre. So all this brings us to March 25th, when those 300 Greeks surrounded and then attacked the village using military trumpets, which were usually employed by the Ottomans, in order to fool the villagers to thinking that the, this was the Ottoman army returning and not the Greeks and to kind of lower their guard. As a result, somewhere between 65 and 72 locals were killed, including some women and children, after they refused to denounce the exarchate and join the Greek Patriarchate Church. Remember, that now there were international officials involved in governing Macedonia. And so, as a result, a tribunal was created to investigate the massacre. You know, these kinds of things could no longer be kind of pushed under the rug and hope that no one would notice. You know, after the reforms following a Linden, there's a lot more attention, a lot more foreigners in Macedonia. One colonel wrote, quote, As an officer of the Italian army, I took part in many battles with the wild African tribes. It often happened that one, our soldiers were captured by the Africans and killed. But I have never seen such a slaughter of such refined cruelty, and I find no words to describe the perpetrators of this atrocity. End quote. Well, I'll, I'll skip the gruesome details because they are really quite gruesome. But a Bulgarian reported to Sofia on his conversations with foreigners involved in investigating this massacre, writing, quote, The Russian consul, Mr. Cole, wept when he told me what he had seen. The Austrian consul, Mr. Prohaska, could hardly hold back his tears. They declare that they have not seen such horrors committed by the Turks during the uprising, end quote. In other words, these foreign observers are basically saying that the sheer level of brutality by this Greek cheta of 300 men actually outpaces anything they saw done by Ottoman irregular soldiers against the uprising. And Frankly, we've covered a lot of what those Ottoman Bashipazooks have done uh, in the aftermath of various uprisings, and so we should you know, have some sense of just how bad it must have been. Now, obviously, because there were all these foreigners involved, this brought a tremendous amount of negative attention to Greece in the international press, resulting in Greek leaders ordering that these soldiers temporarily refrain from leading more of such attacks. It also triggered a series of anti-Greek riots in Bulgaria, where a small Greek community had thus far more or less avoided any problems with the Bulgarian authorities. But now they suddenly found themselves at the center of this growing Bulgarian-Greek conflict. And, well, I'm going to talk about that more next time. So, that's it for today. We've discussed the question of uh, Macedonian Slav identity a bit more, but the big event was a series of MRO meetings in response to the failure of the Linden Uprising, in which the organization became dominated by its far-left faction, meaning it's now set to move further away from identifying with Bulgaria and more towards a socialist, internationalist vision of Macedonia's future. Both the Bulgarian and Ottoman governments were also cracking down on the organization more than ever before. 
All this was coming at the same time that Greek Cheta activity is rising rapidly in Macedonia, leading to a horrific massacre and anti-Greek riots in Bulgaria. Next time, we'll finish covering 1905, exploring more details about the Greek community in Bulgaria before learning a bit more about what these anti-Greek riots looked like, and we'll also cover a very far-off battle that will have massive implications for Bulgaria and world history. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Rabin. As always, you can find more information about this in every episode at bghistorypodcast.com, so be sure to check that out, and I'll see you in the next one.